0: Welcome to Football with Grant Wall. Thanks so much for joining me. While I've got you, you can sign up for a free or paid subscription to my newsletter at grantwall.com. It has all my writing, including magazine-style features, breaking news, opinion pieces, and on-location stories for every U.S. Men's World Cup qualifier, including this Friday, USA-Mexico. It's coming. That's at grantwall.com. Our first segment will have Chris Whittingham and me talking about global news and the U.S. men's national team roster. Second segment will be my interview with Sebastian Salazar of ESPN. And in the third segment, we'll talk about a wild decision day on MLS and the NWSL playoff starting. Let's bring in Chris Whittingham. How are you, Chris?
1: Doing all right. We are recording this just minutes after decision day concluded, and it was absolutely bonkers. (laughs)
0: LA Galaxy out. Real Salt Lake in league office. Going to be thrilled about that one.
1: (laughs) (laughs) We'll get to it in segment three. We'll get to it in segment three. There's a tease. Uh, But let's start
0: with segment one here. World soccer headlines, Manchester Derby, Man United nil, Manchester City 2. It felt like the scoreline was a lot wider of a difference than it was. Man United was never really in this.
1: No, and the thing when you watch it, was I heard a funny joke from Max Rushton, who uh, who hosts the Guardian Football Weekly Pod. He said, I tallied up my own XG for the game. It was Manchester United <laughs> nil, Manchester City 27, which is, which is about how the game felt. And... It was just so interesting to me that Man City in the second half almost seemed unbothered with scoring another goal and they're just like one Cristiano Ronaldo moment away from it all of a sudden being a 2-1 game and they're having to sweat out the final minutes. But I think they just had the supreme confidence that Manchester United were not going to get anywhere near them. There was one volleyed effort from Cristiano Ronaldo and other than that, Man City just played through them again and again and again, Pep Guardiola tactically outwitting Ole Gunnar Solskjaer by you know making sure the fullbacks get forward as the wingers run to the wingbacks, tons of space in wide areas, and you just see the way that Man City played through the pressure. I'm not kidding, Grant. I laughed out loud at Manchester United's inability to press when they tried to cause problems with like the simplicity with which Man City played through them was genuinely funny to me because you look at the lack of running that there is in that forward line. They're just not going to cause Man City any problems. They didn't lay a glove on them. It was an easy victory, as easy of a victory as Manchester City will have all season. And it happened at Old Trafford.
0: And the Manchester United fan friends of mine, when I talked to them, my, my Uh, my main one, Brent Maximin, who I, I watch a lot of games with is is fun to follow on Twitter uh, with his united commentary just he, he thinks it 's almost farcical at this point following this team, which doesn 't seem to have a real plan long term medium term at all for the club and has brought together a lot of individuals who play like a group of individuals and It's kind of shocking, actually, at this point, that Solskjaer still has a job. As of right now, we're recording this. He still has a job. And I I kind of get the sense that people aren't expecting him to get fired overnight. Antonio Conte, who would have been the guy you would think Man United would have hired, just got hired by Spurs. And I don't really have any confidence in the Man United hierarchy to... Get a good replacement in there at this point. Zidane doesn't want the job. Ten Hag from Ajax, I don't think you're going to get him out of Ajax right now. Like For the amount of money that Manchester United has, this is a pretty embarrassing situation to be in.
1: And you hear Gary Neville on Sky saying, I don't think that this hierarchy have any interest in sacking Ole Gunnar Solskjaer right now. And it's crazy because you can just see how they're outwitted when you watch the games and how far away in terms of management Manchester United are from their competitors. Like, they, their competitors are much... And that includes West Ham United, who are managed oh, by yeah. David Moyes. And so they are miles away in terms of management. And you just see, he's had years, and if anything, this year has been a regression in large part, in my opinion, because of bringing in Cristiano Ronaldo. They're trying to adjust around him. They changed from the 4-2-3-1 that they've been playing for years, and they basically recognized we need to try and figure out how we get more defensive solidity while still having Ronaldo out there, and they're trying a bunch of things that aren't working. And so their overall plan, I think, eroded this year. They bought Varane. They bought Jadon Sancho. Fabrizio Romano did a really good piece on the Ronaldo transfer. When it came about, United were looking into buying a midfielder. They could really use one right now. They started with Fred and Scott McTominay again. They need better than those two in the center of the park. And the idea that this has completely fallen apart really exposes how much they need a, quote, proper manager. This is what they need to bring in. But as you mentioned, the, the candidates don't look lightly, likely. In my view, they're going to have to pluck a manager who's currently in a job and Manchester United in negotiations, that's not exactly something that has gone well in recent times. I think they are in a dire situation. You look at the table, and I can't see them catching right now the teams that are above them, and that would have them out of the Champions League.
0: Yeah, and we are starting an international break, obviously, so we have a couple weeks here. And we're seeing coaching changes made elsewhere, including at Aston Villa, Norwich as well. I am curious to see if something develops here over this next week with Manchester United during the international break. I kind of hope for their sake that it does, because right now it looks pretty hopeless.
1: Yeah, it's weird because like, I'm, a, I'm a Manchester City fan. I've said this on the podcast before. And, like, I was getting angry at Manchester United. (laughs) I was, like, I was watching, like, this should be better. Why is it this better? They have so many good players. And I do think, by the way, from that fan prism, Man City's excellence in this game has probably not been talked about enough because it's mainly been about Manchester United falling apart and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, City probably could have even been better on the day. They could have scored more goals. And I almost wonder if they were taking it easy on Manchester United a little bit so that... Because, I mean, if they... I think if United lose 6-0 in the derby... I think Ole is probably sacked by now. But because it was only two, it, it doesn't look as embarrassing. But I don't think that's because Manchester United were, you know, a 2-0, were worthy of 2-0. It's because City kind of took it easy. But City, I thought, were excellent, and they just look, they're purring right now. And you see the main difference, which is they have 11 guys who work versus United do not.
0: A couple other quick things. Antonio Conte obviously has joined Spurs. Nil-nil uh, draw at Everton. And, you know, like, look, it's... Uh, getting results from his first two games. He's just come in and now he's going to have a couple of weeks off to maybe get his, you know, get more settled into Tottenham. But just in general about this hire, this is a home run hire for me. And I'm just a little surprised that Tottenham was able to pull it off. Given that Conte didn't want the job in the end over the summer. Now he does.
1: To me, the surprising thing is that Daniel Levy convinced Antonio Conte to come because Antonio Conte is known, in my opinion—honestly, this supersedes even his excellence as a manager, which is unfortunate—but his complaints that he never has enough. He never has enough. At Juventus, at Chelsea, and at Inter, he never has enough. He always wants to spend more money. The owner's not doing enough. And I can't imagine a worse club to go to than Tottenham Hotspur when, those, when that's kind of been your reputation. But as you said, he's an incredible manager. And I think he is going to lift this team. But I think as I I watch most of the game today, it's one of those things where I think Tottenham, with the choice in coach, have been hoping for a microwave solution, right? Where we bring in a coach and he makes the thing better. With Jose Mourinho, with Nuno Espirito Santo, and they're hoping that Pochettino could have turned it around at the end. I think they're in for something in the long term. And I think that's probably what Antonio Conte needed recognized. Interesting that he only gets an 18-month contract with an option, but I think... They're not going to solve this overnight. The squad also needs an overhaul as well as an improvement in coaching. Yeah, that's true. But uh, just the mere fact that they got him, I I,
0: I remain stunned that Conte is not going to Manchester United because I thought that was going to be the place where he would go. It's a place that can certainly spend more than Tottenham can. And something must have happened there. There must have been something, some moment, when Man United communicated to Conte, we don't want you.
1: Well, so here's the interest. So I, I listen a lot to Gary Neville's podcast. He like does a thing at the end of whatever game he's calling, and he's obviously very plugged in at Manchester United. And he goes, "Yeah, the board we're never really interested in Antonio Conte. They don't want a like." And he always says, "Manchester United don't want mercenaries." Manchester United. We tried the big manager with Jose Mourinho with Louis Van Hall, and it didn't work. And it just it was kind of bizarre to me that you cite those two at the examples, considering what they've gone on to do. Louis Van Gaal and Jose Mourinho, after they left Manchester United, they used to like kind of give up on getting a big-time manager because those two didn't work, and like Antonio Conte's record as a manager is incredible with Italy with uh, Chelsea, with Juventus, with Inter. An incredible record as a manager. The idea that Manchester United would want him because you don't get to keep him for 15 years. Like, the life cycle for a lot of managers is three or four years. You're doing pretty well if you get, uh, you know, like, Manchester City feel like they're on borrowed time with Pep Guardiola. He's only been there for five years. Like, it's not, you're not getting, you know, generational managers anymore. I feel like United are still kind of trying to chase Sir Alex Ferguson that doesn't happen anymore. And so I feel like they kind of need a change in mentality that, well, if Ole Gunnar Solskjaer works, that he'll be here for a decade. Like, get over that. Like, this is a new era. It's time to conform to what's happening in modern society. A couple of other
0: quick ones here. Uh, Milan-Darby, 1-1, great first half, so-so second half, but still Milan doing quite well uh, in Syria. Uh, Along with Napoli, which has some very sweet uh, jerseys uh, for Diego Maradona today, which I would love to find one of those if it's actually possible to get one. Um, also, Celta Vigo three Barcelona three. Barça was up three nil in this game, ended up tying three three. Lots of Barça fans in my timeline losing their minds. Uh, Xavi announced at 1:45 a.m. Barcelona time as. <laughs> officially the new manager and i will say this i am excited to see what happens here i'm a big shabby guy i think this is going to be really difficult for him from a soccer perspective just given what he's got to work with the financial problems at the club from a vibes perspective i love it and i think that part could be really cool and it sounds like they're going to have uh The stadium open for fans to come, and and that could be a really cool scene to see how many people show up for the announcement of Xavi as the Barcelona manager. One of the great interviews I've ever had in my career took place in 2012 in Barcelona with Xavi talking about his love of romantic football and fighting for that idea and how it's important in an era when modern football is so often about athleticism and brawn to play the way that Barcelona did when Xavi was there. The question is now, can he oversee that as a manager?
1: Well, at the very least, compared to some of the other player legends that have become managers, uh, he has some experience. And, you know, there's like one clip that went viral of his team in Qatar you know, with a beautiful back-to-front move that looked like exactly the kind of style that he wants to implement, but he probably has the best players in the league that he's in. But he still managed to get a tune out of him. And it's also interesting mid-season, in the middle of a Champions League campaign, in the middle of international breaks, to really be able to get your team on the training ground and implement something like this. But you're right. It it certainly makes them more interesting. They certainly probably at this point kind of have nothing to lose just because the situation is so dire- they're not in the Champions League positions heading towards next year. And Barcelona could use an emotional lift right now. And hopefully, they are a better watch now going forward as a result of Xavi taking over. Interesting, just to further highlights the financial issues, they're actually splitting the cost of the buyout at his Qatari club with Xavi. Barcelona don't have any money, which, again, if you're talking about improving this playoff, this playing squad for Xavi, Probably not going to happen in the January window given the current state, but it'll certainly make them more interesting to watch.
0: It is okay, though, because Xavi won the lottery in Qatar. <laughs> I don't know if you <laughs> saw that a while back. I'm sure that was random. <laughs> I'm curious to see how it goes for him because he's kind of turned it down for a little while. Could have turned it down this time. Didn't. He's taking the job. We'll see what Xavi can do with Barcelona. I'm curious from a U.S. perspective, will he like Serginho Dest as much as Kuhlman did, because Kuhlman played Des a lot, um, and there's not that many options. So we'll see if Des continues to get the kind of playing time once we're on the other side of the international window. Des, by the way, not joining the U.S. team because he's got an injury, which is kind of a bummer for the U.S. Uh, speaking of which, let's talk about the U.S. men's national team squad release. Uh, we're going to get into this in more detail as well with Sebi Salazar in segment two, because we're talking a lot about USA Mexico. But we do have some changes with this lineup. We mentioned Sergio Dest is not in. Also, George Bello, Luca De La Torre, Matthew Hoppe, Shaq Moore, Jassy Zardes injured. And also, interestingly, maybe most interestingly to me, John Brooks not called in to this team at all, and he ends up issuing a statement saying, I've got to do better. My form has not been good with the U.S. men's national team. I'm feeling better after my Champions League performances recently. Um, So this is an interesting one for me because I agree, John Brooks has not been great with the U.S. when he's been in during qualifying, but I still don't totally see why you don't call him in at all. All. It's not like the U.S. has some group of center backs that is world class. I guess the one question I would have about Brooks is: is he a guy that if you bring him in, you have to start him?
1: I don't know. Uh, I, I think you can probably make an argument that 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 would kind of be the political dynamic if you brought him in. But I also disagree slightly with the notion that you know he is better than the center backs that you called into this camp. I think that John Brooks, if you kind of treated the national team as a club team and not as a national team where you were constantly bringing players in and out, you would say on his form for this club, he shouldn't deserve to play. He shouldn't deserve to be on the bench. And so I think it's a totally defensible decision that if you just looked at it within the context of the national team, that he wouldn't be in this squad. He also, I think, has a reputation to shed in terms of going away in CONCACAF and not completely losing the plot, which he's done on a couple of occasions in multiple World Cup qualifying cycles. You would say on a reliability basis, I trust Miles Robinson and Walker Zimmerman more than I trust John Brooks. And that's just the case of his performances with the national team. So in my opinion, I think this is the correct decision from Greg Berhalter, and we'll see if he can recover and be back in the fold by the end of the qualifying cycle.
0: The biggest single question for me is, why is John Brooks better at Wolfsburg than he is with the national team. And I know he's had some decent performances at times over time with the national team. I know he's had a little bit of an up-and-down situation at Wolfsburg. But over the long the long haul, I think Brooks has been better at club level than he has been for the U.S. national team. I don't know if that's connected to travel and he doesn't travel well or or something else but it, it's still a lingering question for me and it is true I, I think miles robinson has earned sort of the put him in there in pen in the lineup at this point and then the question is who do you play him next to in this roster uh maybe walker zimmerman maybe chris richards uh I, i'm curious to see what decision gets made there because in the you know you've only got two games for the u.s in this window not three so theoretically you should be able to play
1: your best possible team in both games. Agreed. And this is not the time to start experimenting. I think this is the time to pick, I would say make zero changes from game one to game two, unless someone really has a poor performance. Lock down your team and go with them. I think if you look at the way that he, for example, Greg Berhalter picked at the striker position, bringing in Jesus Ferreira as the backup to Ricardo Pepe, you're basically saying Pepe is starting both games and maybe I'm bringing Ferreira to compliment Pepe, but he has no intention of starting a forward other than Ricardo Pepe for both of those two games, which puts a lot of pressure onto him, but I think is the correct way to approach it. I think the right back problem is really interesting because if you had said to me before the Nations League Finals, where is the U.S. strongest? They've got like seven right backs, but then... Reggie Cannon doesn't play very much at all for a bad team in Portugal and Boa Vista. Was hoping for a move, didn't get one. Brian Reynolds has been excommunicated by Jose Mourinho at Roma. Was pinned for a massive defeat in a Europa Conference League game. He's not playing at all, so you can't really call him in. You know, Shaq Moore, you know, I don't think has been great in a U.S. shirt. And you go on down the line and all of a sudden it's like, hang on a second, who's starting it right back against Mexico? And right now the favorite would be DeAndre Yedlin, who I, while he has figured in the national team in these last two windows, I think if you said a year ago, hey, this generation of U.S. players, like I don't think DeAndre Yedlin was being included as a regular in the national team. And I think that it's a fair shock that he's all of a sudden become the first choice right back.
0: No, it's a great point. I, I'm actually kind of fascinated with this Phase of DeAndre Yedlin's career because he basically starts every game for Galatasaray in Turkey, which is a really interesting place to play. But there's a lot of pressure on you, so that's a good sign for him that he has earned that, uh that spot, has performed well. And, and to be honest, I think has performed pretty well with the national team when he's come in. Yedlin was a big part of the comeback in Honduras, which has put the U.S. in a position right now that they're on track for the World Cup. If If that game hadn't turned around, with Yedlin being a pretty significant part of it, we may be talking differently about this U.S. men's national team. I do want to mention Joe Scally finally getting the call in, uh, which probably should have happened a while back, but here he is. Do you think he might actually play some? You would think Anthony Robinson would be the starting left back for both of these games, but you never know.
1: Well, Joe Scalley has also played some at right back with Mönchengladbach, and and so if you need, as, as he did at the weekend, by the way, in a 1-1 draw away at Mainz for Gladbach, So, Joe Scally right back, maybe? I mean, but again, the team is already so young. The notion of bringing in an 18-year-old as the solution to another problem is just, it, it, it does kind of get to a point where it's like, all right, how many teenagers are they going to play? And, and And I know, like, I shouldn't really be in this mode. Like, I do think for Mexico, you're picking DeAndre Yedlin, but... I don't know. Like you can't take any game lightly, and so do you experiment with Joe Scally away at Jamaica because you think it's an easy game, and then all of a sudden it's his first game in CONCACAF, and he can't, you know, get out of his own way because he's not used to this style of play. I, I don't know. I don't know when you, when all of a sudden you, you start experimenting with Joe Scally, but I mean he certainly deserves it on the evidence of starting every week for a big club in Germany.
0: The other question I've got is Christian Pulisic. How many minutes can you play him given this is a guy who has not played beyond some mop-up duty in a couple of games for Chelsea?
1: Yeah, and I heard a a couple of roster breakdowns, and it was interesting that maybe the five subs rule comes into play here that maybe in a previous window you'd never think about starting a player that you'd intend on playing 90 minutes. But maybe with the five subs rule – Christian Pulisic can give you 45 minutes. What if they're the first 45 minutes? I think it's more likely he gets used in a super sub role. It would certainly make some sense. Came on late in the day for Chelsea in their 1-1 draw against Burnley and played, uh, I think it was close to 20 minutes in their game against, it was 15 minutes in the game against Malmo in the Champions League. But I I think if that's all he's given, he's played 20 minutes of club football since the last time you had him. I think he's probably a sub in both of these games, but a hell of an option to bring in off the bench. And I think you trust Whoever that front three is going to be, my guess is it'll be Eriksen, Pepe, and Weah in the game against Mexico, and then you can bring on Pulisic to change the game.
0: You're forgetting Paul Arriola, my friend.
1: <laughs> Listen, Greg, Greg Berhalter <laughs> loves him some Paul Arriola, so I would not be stunned if he played in the game either.
0: That's it for segment one. Chris will be back in segment three to talk MLS and NWSL. Now here's our interview with Sebastian Salazar. Mm-hmm. Our guest now is my friend, Sebastian Salazar of ESPN. He's the co-host with Hercules Gomez of the excellent show, Football Americas, which you can see on ESPN+. Sebi also appears on ESPN FC and does play-by-play with Julie Foudy on ESPN's U.S. Women's National Team Games, among other things. Sebi, it's great to see you. Thanks for coming on the show.
2: Hey, thanks for having me. I've, uh, I've listened to the show for a while, so as I was telling you before, it's always cool to, to appear on a show that, you, that you've listened to. <laughs>
0: I love it that we actually have listeners. I, I just get excited about this, uh, who then come on as interview guests, but... Um, So we're recording this on Friday night. It's coming out Monday, which means it's USA Mexico week in World Cup qualifying. And for you, as someone who pays close attention to soccer on Mm. both sides of the border, what does this week mean to you?
2: Well, I can kind of give you the personal side of it first. You know, I'm I'm very much split. My my dad is from upstate New York, kind of rural western upstate New York, and my mom's from Mexico City. So even our household is, is very much divided. My, my dad is, is a fan of the U.S., no doubt about it. He came to soccer late, but he's a huge fan of the game, and the U.S. is his team. My mom taught me the game, and she loves Mexico, and she doesn't like their rivals. You know, the U.S. is, is one of their rivals. So it's a, it's a strange week on, like, a personal level um, because you feel a lot of conflicting emotions, and, and I think that's kind of the, the center of the rivalry. In terms of where the rivalry is now, I just think it's, a, it's an amazing kind of intersection Mexico is, if we're kind of really honest about it, enjoying a great generation, but that's probably, if not at their peak, kind of coming off it. And what is the U.S. team? The U.S. is this kind of explosion of potential. And so you're kind of waiting for these two lines to cross. And I, I feel like on both sides of the border, we're, we're kind of like always wondering... How close we are to that to that moment?
0: Yeah, it's just a lot going on. What are you set to be doing for ESPN on Friday for the U.S. Mexico broadcast?
2: So we'll have you know pregame, uh, halftime, postgame coverage, all that surrounding the match on ESPN two as well as on ESPN plus. They're going to simulcast it, and we'll have Jermaine Jones there and Casey Keller, same guys that we had at the games in Columbus uh, and Austin. It's been great working with them. You know, we're, we're kind of a new team, starting to get to know each other, but. Uh, you get those two guys over dinner and you realize they have stories for days. So uh, my only job is to kind of like try and bring those out of them. And, and I think um, as we hang out more, it's, it's going to be, be better and better. But, you know, I think, um, I think the pregame show is going to have a lot of elements like it always does. We're bouncing up to the, to the booth. We're using Sam Borden, who's kind of been our sideline reporter throughout these games. He's got his more E60 kind of storytelling side of things. And he's going to dive into some interesting topics and, and people there. So I think from, from those aspects, we're gonna we're gonna try to hit it from all angles. You know, we have a, an hour on the digital side, which is, you know, a real blessing. You know, you, you need space for, for games like this. You need pregame space. The truth is, you know, you you work for TV stations. You know how hard it is to get on what they call linear TV. And so they can get you the game in about 10 or 15 minutes pregame, but you can't do USA Mexico justice in, in 10 or 15 minutes pregame. You need a proper hour. So We'll go an hour before. We're probably going to go hours after. Uh, Football Américas is going to do a special live edition right after the game as well. So it's going to be a lot of fun. And especially in the Fútbol América show, like, we're going to be pulling people from the Deportes side. So you're really going to be getting in that moment, um, I think, kind of like a cool slice of, of where really – both fandoms are
0: at. I think it's really cool how your show does give us that. It's it's a real look at both sides out sort of a 50-50 way, which I, I really appreciate to get that um, full context on things. I, I do want to ask you about the two coaches. If you're Mexico mm. coach Tata Martino, what are you thinking about this game? And what if you're U.S. coach Greg Berhalter? But I want to start with Tata. What, what If you're mm. Tata, what are, you, what are you thinking about this game,
2: You know, are my stars going to show up, really, because that's been the question with Mexico. Is Chupilozano going to be the star player that, that we've seen him be really at the CONCACAF level, right? That, that elite difference maker. And I, the only name that I can think of in that category right now is Alfonso Davies. But, you know, can Chupilozano be that type of player? Can Raul Jimenez be what he was pre-injury? Start to get some of those goals. He's, he's beginning to score in the Premier League, convert that, you know, to the national team in a big, significant moment against the United States. And the other real serious concern... Is his back line. I mean, his center back position is is kind of a, a rotating shock right now. And I think until that gets settled, there's there's real serious concerns from Mexico there. The other point that, you know, is kind of obvious. We we talk again about this young team perhaps overtaking an older team is when when you look at the United States, they're they're scary. They're scary fast, they're scary physical from a Mexican perspective, at least. And so I think the, the right combination in that midfield trio, which, I mean, you tell me a coach that isn't like desperate to figure that out, right? Unless it's Ancelotti at Madrid who kind of knows who his three are always going to be, provided health. Like if you figure the right three out, man, you know, that's, you figured out a big part of your four 3 3 He's got to get younger there. He's got to get leggier there um, because some of the guys like Andres Guardado are just are starting to show that they're just a little too old for the speed of the international game. So I think there's a lot of concerns from the Mexico side. Yeah. You sit first in CONCACAF and that, that maybe allows you to, to tinker a little bit, to take some chances and, and get some answers in big games like this, which you can't really replicate elsewhere. But um, I, I do think from a Mexican perspective, there's, you know, there's some warts under what looks like a pretty good qualifying run.
0: So what if you're Greg Burhalter? what are you thinking about from your perspective?
2: Yeah. Well, the number nine position, man, right? Like it's, it's a position we talk about on Fútbol Américas all the time. Like, why not with Herc? Right? You're always going to bring up like top fives and this and that. But you know, I think that's been one of the running kind of themes on the show is the top five at that position for the U.S. And and I'm sure if you go back to the first one, I'm sure he's got Josie Altador somewhere in there, like number two or three. And you can just see how like how much change there's been since what we started the show. Not even a year. Not even a year ago. Seven seven eight months ago. So um, that position really is is not just unanswered, but He's tried so many different questions at it, like beyond Pepe. And so I think when you, when you see Pepe in there for now, you think, great, listen, this kid's amazing. And, and we hope the run of form continues, but you got to have other options. So, um, I'm, I'm thinking it's, it's, that's a, a big concern for him. What you're going to get out of your star guys too, you know, is, is Weston McKinney going to give you some of those goals that he's been scoring for Juventus we talked about it on the show. He's so, to me, if, if you're Mexico, you're worried about him. He's a big game player. He's a set-piece player. Set-pieces for Mexico are really a, a nightmare, especially against the United States. They're a, for every Mexico fan, they're a hold-your-breath moment. So, Weston McKinney is a scary player for you. And then Christian Pulisic, who, in other games against Mexico, and, and honestly for this U.S. team, has been very quiet. You know, right. what are you going to get from him over 90 minutes, 60 minutes, 30 minutes, whatever you ask of him in that, in that Mexico game, which is another big, big question for, for Greg Berhalter. What's the actual workload you can ask of, of Christian Pulisic after what we've seen is now kind of cycle of him going to the national team, getting hurt, missing time with Chelsea.
0: So when it comes to your show, Football Americas, is it accurate to say that you're trying to do something on the show that we see a lot more of in Mexican media than in the U S soccer media, which is to say having polemica debates about the sport here.
2: Yeah. So I, I, first of all, I wouldn't say it's probably like unique to Mexican soccer, right? I think you see that in a lot of different places. Sure. Perks Mexican American, I'm Mexican American. Most of our production team is, is Mexican American Latino. So they watch ESPN Deportes. We see the content that comes out of Argentina, which is where we produce a lot of our content. But yes, the bulk of it, you know, Mexico City, shows like Futbol Picante, you know, those are, those are kind of institutions in Mexican soccer. They set the, the narrative for what everybody is talking about, what's in the papers. And, you know, those are shows, I'll be honest, those are the show that I've idolized since, since I was a, a kid, you know, since it launched. Not a kid, when I'm a much younger adult, when it launched and, and being like, wow, this is, this is something that I'm going to watch every night. And then to have some of those ideas and try and bring that into an, an English-speaking setting and, and talking about the things that, you know, folks north of the border care about, right? Like doing it towards MLS and doing it with Liga and Mechis, but in English, national teams as well, the women's national team. Um, I think it's a good, you know, it's it's a good experiment, right? Like we're doing something that is maybe different and seeing if there's a market for it. But I think it's also an honest clash of cultures. Like this is something that, um, as more and more, you know, people from Mexico and of Mexican descent end up in the United States, things are going to come with us and come with our parents. And, and I think there's going to be an influence and, you know, I hope that this is one of those influences and this is one that is, you know, for the better and really enjoyment of the people in this space.
0: So has the, some of the response been from some of the establishment American soccer organizations, MLS, us soccer groups like that to some of the criticism that does come up on your show.
2: Yeah, no, I think, um, I think we haven't had like that big blow up moment yet. You know, and I think Herc and I, when we started the show, and I'm sure you've had these um, interactions as well. Um, we're kind of like, All right, when's that coming? Because we're going to be, you know, right on that line over and over and, and over again. And we, we knew what we wanted to talk about. We knew that there would be times when we kind of, um, wanted to focus on things that maybe uh, organizations would prefer ESPN, not focus on. I think that's really the power of the show is the platform of ESPN, right? It's, it's not, I mean, I'd love to think that it's the things that we do that are unique and different, but having that platform is really what, what serves the show. And so in some ways, when you say something on the show, you know, it's going to get out, right? You know, it, it's, it, people are going to hear it and it's always interesting, right? Cause you can tell people aren't listening to the podcast or watching the show live it's always when the tweet goes out and that's when you get you know i know you know that it's when you get that email and get that that phone call i think we definitely had some you know open some good conversations you know i've had people text me like hey i disagree with this what, what was this supposed to mean you know what was that and hey you know you got to clarify what you say or you gotta you know you have to stand by what you say and I, at least you know i won't speak for Herc. i know he does a lot of work for the show we put a lot of work into what we're covering and what we're saying. Like, you know, we're not going to go out there and be irresponsible. We might go out there, shoot from the hip, but we're not going to shoot from the hip irresponsibly if, 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 if it can be done. So, you know, we're, we try to be as prepared as we possibly can be. And so I think in that way, while it, some of the criticisms might, might feel stinging, I feel like, you know, there's always substance to it. And as long as there's substance, those, those conversations, I think, you know, back and forth can be had. The, the conversations that worry me are the ones that I'm not involved in, right? And I don't know if you've ever gone through this, when they go straight to your bosses. And and those are when you're like, okay, now now I know I really did something wrong. And if they've gone to the bosses yet, you know, we haven't heard about it. So so we'll leave it there. It's
0: funny because back when I was at Sports Illustrated and I co-hosted a video show with Luis Miguel Echegaray, who's now at mm-hmm, CBS.
2: Mm-hmm. Killing it, killing it. You know,
0: we enjoyed it. And we had an issue, though, sometimes finding stuff that we disagreed on because, like, we wanted mm. to create some debate on the show. But then, like, even the stuff that was sort of occasionally a, a critical viewpoint towards something, we kind of still agreed. Like, how do yeah. you and, and her come <laughs> up with what you're going to talk about? on the show, do you go out of your way to find some things that you and he disagree about?
2: Well, we follow each other on Twitter. So I think that's like a perfect place to start, right? You tweet something out, you immediately disagree with it. Instead of quote tweeting it, you just, you know, you put it in the, in the. we have a WhatsApp chain and hashtag save it for the show, you know? And then it's like, boom, it's a topic on Monday. Um, so I, I think, let, I'll, let me speak about on the first point is that, you know, the, the Herc, the, the chemistry with me and Herc I think is unique. Like we've worked together on so many other things And I think uh, I was talking about this the other day with somebody, you know, we're just about the same age, very similar backgrounds, um, in some regards, very similar upbringings, especially when it came to like soccer and club soccer, but extremely different, like, you know, viewpoints and and also like real world experiences, you know, being a, a teenager where he was versus where I was. And so we're like predisposed to care about the same things, but also predisposed to come at them from like totally different angles. And so um, I think to the other point, is like, you know, what are we picking? Are we picking things that are like, you know, I think any, any topic you can make a good debate if, if you really invest yourself in, in the point. Um, there are things that for me are very, if I see something, I, you know, that I'm very hot about, I'll put it in the WhatsApp chain, like, I can't believe this. And if Herc bites Beto or Rafa, our producers know, bingo, like, okay, A block, B block. And so, and he does the same to me, you know, and sometimes he'll do it on Twitter and you you can almost see him like luring me out sometimes. (laughs) Um, And I'm like, dude, save it for the show. But it, it, I think, you know, so much of it comes from being on top of the topics, right. Knowing what's coming. And then just being like, what are a, people talking about? What do people care about? And then how can we, kind of have a good conversation around that. And if that means debate, great. If that means hammering one side, great. If that means ch- championing one side, great. But like, how can we, we kind of make it interesting in, the, in that way? And if we can't make it interesting, then we don't really put it in the show.
0: Another aspect of opinions, when you're putting opinions out there, whether you're a written columnist or a TV opinion person this comes up from time to time, which is the question of, do you ever put an opinion out that you don't necessarily believe, but you think in a sort of like, I'm a good lawyer perspective and I can put out something that I don't even agree with. It's, it's, that's effective. Do you ever consider that? Do you ever do it?
2: Yeah. So uh, what I would say is like, I do, I do it to a point, right? Like there'll never be a topic that I'm not invested in that I argue on. Um, however, and I think I'll say it on the show, I'll be like, Hey, I'm to play devil's advocate. Or, you know, like if I were to make an argument against you, this is how I would do it. You know, when I do want to preface it, there's not, there's never anything I say that I don't believe or haven't like done, you know, research on to like make a few points that say, okay, this is why, um, I believe this. And, and the, like I said, the topics go through a pretty sturdy vetting process in that, like you have to be interested in them and passionate about them, which means you're knowledgeable about them, which means, you know, whatever your, your take is, even if it's, even if it's wrong, even if it's like just totally wrong. And I've had some of those, like I'll hold my <laughs> hands up. Um, you know, it, it comes from a, a, a place you can defend and yeah. that's, you know, I think that's the point, right. Can you, can you defend it? Um, not seriously, um, but honestly. And I think, you know, I'll always say, yeah, I think I can defend whatever I say, honestly, without being disingenuous.
0: No, that makes sense. Um, So you're obviously a very versatile guy in what you do for ESPN. When you host ESPN FC, which is a different show from Football Americas, how different is that for you?
2: Totally. Totally different. Yeah. Um, I mean, one, just the content matter is, is you know, the subjects that we're talking about are, are totally different. ESPN FC has very much the whole soccer lane. So European um, versus what we do, which is very intentionally almost stay in our lane, but really spend time in it. Right. Like we right. don't really do. If we do Champions League, there's got to be a, oh, Ajax advanced with Edson. Like there's got to be a tie to our region. We're not going to talk about PSG City and Messi versus whatever, it, you know. So um, FC gives you those those huge topics to read them even even to so basic like a Messi Ronaldo those those things to kind of chew on how great was Messi today um, and those conversations are are super fun to be a part of as well um, they're not for me if I'm being honest you know they're not you know the Messi versus Ronaldo I think is anybody that's you know <laughs> anybody can feel that in their gut um, you know I grew up I didn't grow up with European football first you know I grew up watching the and uh, television I mean that my mom introduced me to the game. Like I, I didn't know about Europe until later. I mean, I, I remember running home on like ESPN and taping Dutch league games on like Tuesday afternoons after school because th- that was the soccer you'd get. But um, I didn't grow up like a, a, a huge diehard of the European game. So to me, when I host that show, it's um, I think in some ways it's, it's, it's easier because I'm really almost like learning there too, right? I'm, I'm teeing up the guys like, hey, tell me this, tell me that. Um, I really lean on their expertise. And the cast there is so, so like such an amazing, just compilation of resumes. And so you add all those guys together and their crazy personalities and the freedom that they've been given. Cause ESPN FC is really like what it is because of how it's produced, right? How it's run. Um, you put, they used to put those guys on a freaking couch and just have them go, you know, now they put them behind a desk at least for somewhat, you know, like professional now, but we were on a couch just having fun, you know, shooting the breeze and, and, I think born of that show, you know, you had kind of this a little bit more edgy, you know, debatey kind of back and forth and I think really if we're being honest, you know, Fútbol Americas is is born of and modeled after a lot of things, but it's it's really very much spin off might not be the right word, but something like that of of ESPN FC because our our attitudes and our viewpoints and our willingness to to kind of go at things I think is very similar to F- FC where like on ESPN FC, if Manchester United has a bad day, it's it's kind of like a, a good day for the show, right? It's a it's a day where we can really sink our teeth in. And and I think we definitely take that approach towards towards our stuff. Hey, if it's a good day, we can have a great show. But if it's a bad day, we can have a great show too.
0: I find it fascinating that you say your mother, who was born in Mexico City, got you into the game of soccer. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if that's Necessarily the most common thing, or what people might have expected? What was that story?
2: So, you know, my dad, I mentioned he grew up in in Western New York in the 50s and 60s. He was born in 1949. So, soccer wasn't a part of his life, you know, really until he met my mom. And my mom grew up in Mexico City again in the 50s and 60s, where girls were not encouraged to play, certainly not after adolescence. But she played, you know, on the streets, skinning her knees, covering it up with her skirts you know, until she was 11 or 12 and loved the game and really beyond like playing, is a huge fan. My mom watches more soccer like than I do. And, and she, you know, I, I do it professionally. You know, she, she yeah. really watches a ton of the games. Her grandfather took her to Club America games before Azteca was built, when they used to play where Pumas play now, the Ciudad uh, the, uh, Universidad uh, down there in Mexico City. And so she really is the person that like knew the game, loved the game big Club America fan, big Mexico national team fan, which of course she really connected with more and more as she was here. You know, once you get here and the national team becomes a symbol of the place you've left, I think it was like a, a huge thing for her. And she always exposed me to the game. She was the one that, you know, really put, the, put it on TV, made it a culture around the house. And then beyond that, you know, Mexico at the 1994 World Cup was for me like seeing that with my mom was a a really formative kind of like core memory experience. That was really kind of what turned me from American kid that was into all of the sports, you know, equally. I loved everything. I was a huge Bills fan in the NFL and Lakers in the NBA and Dodgers in baseball. After the '94 World Cup, I like didn't really care about anything else. And so um, she really did, you know, kind of instill the love of the game for me, and you know. My dad then started to love it too, and he became my coach. But it was always mom that, you know, really um, knew the game and kind of was the one that was, that was really promoting it beyond like, go play it. Like, let's talk about it. Let's live it. This, these are the teams that we like, you know. My dad didn't have any of that. There was nothing like that in, in his day.
0: And what are your parents' names?
2: Dan and Milagros. Dan and Milagros. Yeah, yeah, yeah. My dad, nice. it's such a weird, it's such a like interesting uh, combination um, of two folks, but they met in pharmacy school, actually at uh, university of Southern California and the rest is history.
0: Nice. And how, what's sort of your path through your interest in soccer and then turning that into a career in soccer media?
2: Yeah. I mean, just like soccer rat, you know, played on all the club teams, played on the high school team, loved the game, like loved playing it as much as I could as a kid had some like, you know, pretty big dreams when I was, you know, 13, 14, 15, you know, was like, Oh, you know, I want to play. I want to play. Um, and then I think, you know, probably a few years later realized, Hey, it, it probably wasn't going to happen, you know, maybe um, wrong place, wrong time, whatever you might think. But you know, the U S in like the late nineties, early two thousands, wasn't, you didn't, you didn't look and be like, Oh, Hey, I want to be an MLS player on 12,000 a year. It was, it was and an, and, you know, beyond the questions of whether you were actually going to be good enough to get one of the few few jobs you know was it worth it so I think I always thought like well what's the next best thing if you can't be an athlete right if you can't be in pro sports what's the next best thing and I for whatever reason my like teenage mind landed on sports broadcasting kind of like that term and I latched onto it I studied you know I went to my whole college choice instead of playing like d1 soccer i went to a d3 school that had like a student run radio station student run tv station that no students were running so the the dean when i got there was like hey you can do whatever you want and i did like as soon as i got there i was calling games hosting shows um and just kind of did it did it did it and got into really really small market television first job out of college was in the middle of nowhere in georgia then to the middle of nowhere in virginia um, you know, and then just you're on the ladder at that point and you kind of doop, 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 doop. doop and after one or two doop, doops, suddenly you're kind of at ESPN and, and it's, you know, it's really, you feel really lucky first of all, and, um, um, and proud to, have, to, you know, to have made it to ESPN, but also like, it's very much you know, for me, a, a pinch me moment because the sports broadcasting thing was really like, um, a a childhood dream in that way. You know, like I remember when we got cable and ESPN like arrived, it was like, Oh my God, like, this is a thing that you can do. And that's, and that's so cool. Like, you know, and, and so to be part of it now, it's just, um, you know, it's really neat. It's really neat. in that as cheesy as that sounds.
0: No, it's a great story. Um, and how did you, come about being julie foudy's partner for u.s women's national team broadcast because i really enjoyed the chemistry you have with her Mm. um at various times over the last couple of years you've called games but you've also gotten into some pretty interesting debates you've covered basically the real-time resignation of Carlos Cordero last year on a game broadcast. Um, so the night how, before how did that... COVID,
2: the night before COVID. Yes. That was.
0: yes. How did, how did that come together? That, that k- combo of you and Fowdy?
2: The one, the one about the, um, the one of that night of, of the, uh, Oh, the combo. I thought, I thought she said the combo. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, we're I, I, just talking about my mom there. It's like, I, I really, truly, I owe so much of my career to the women's game. I mean, I, I have to say that like my mom, like not only taught me again, the first team I ever coached was my mom's over 30 team. So the first time I ever thought about soccer from like an overhead perspective was that. And the first time I ever got to be on air at a regional sports network level, was the Washington freedom game in 2009 as a sideline reporter. And that was like a big, when you've worked in local TV to make the jump to regional sports network, that's like a big deal or it was back then it was to me. Um, and so I'd always kind of been from then on and being in DC, you know, Montgomery County, I'm right there, you know, where the spirit are now. Um, I'd always just kind of had an interest, you know, we'd, we'd always kind of gone to games. We'd always kind of followed the freedom. And then, you know, when they left, you know, the DC United women, they had a team and we knew some of the players from, you know, mom's friends, their daughters and stuff. So it was, um, I was always kind of following the women's game or what was left of it and the national team. And I think, you know, the opportunity at NBC in 2016, I think the first time we hung out was dinner in Brazil, right? In the Rio Olympics. Um, that was, you know, the first time that anybody's seen me at a national kind of international level. Um, and that was covering the, the women's team. So I think when I got to ESPN, it was really kind of off the shine of that Olympics, if that makes sense. Um, and, and so I think it was very obvious that I would do something with the, with the national team. I think at the time Ian was calling the games. And then I think it really just boiled down to like, Ian had too much stuff going on and, and. The, the, the cross, you know, cross Atlantic travel was too much. And they were like, oh, well Sebastian's around, like, let him do it. And I think that, you know, the truth about me is like, I'm not as good of a play-by-play guy as Ian Dark. And I'm probably never, I'm, no, I'm probably, I'm never going to be. But, um, you know, I really loved and lived the women's game for a while. And I think the first thing that fans liked about me was just that I would like talk about where the players played club. And to me, that was so natural because that's how you broadcast a game. But for me, it was, I knew it because I'd been calling Houston Dash games in 2014, you know, and they, so I knew all these players and, and, and I know where they'd been and and some of their stories. And, um, I I just did it as I would have done any broadcast. I think I just happened to be armed differently than, than most other people who, who did it. And, you know, when you're working with Julie, you kind of can't go wrong. You know, you, you got, you got literally the person that wrote the book, you know, it kind of. Uh, metaphorically so you just let her um you know see what she's seeing from a, a soccer perspective and then from some of these other conversations like unfortunately or unfortunately they're they're happening right now in, in women's in and around women's soccer and like if you try to host a national team broadcast and not talk about it like that's disingenuous to the to the you know i I'm, I'm try not to ever be like oh i'm a too serious of a journalist because that's maybe not what i do and i don't want to be held to that standard but come on like we got to we got to talk about what's happening around the women's game as well because all that stuff impacts the growth which then like creates more games to talk about but if we don't talk about that stuff then you know the growth will i, I, I fear will happen what's happened for the last couple of decades which is always seemingly plateau
0: i also think it's really important that when you cover and talk about women's soccer that you don't the me if you're in the media you don't just talk about it when something bad off the field is happening as as we've seen recently with and we devote a whole episode to having meg linehan and molly hensley clancy on to talk about the stories that they had written that had uh been such a big part of all of this um but if you're a media outlet and all the only time you mention women's soccer is when that stuff happens mm-hmm. and you don't cover the league regularly, that really annoys me. I know it annoys a lot yeah. of women's soccer fans, but the fact of the matter is you cover women's soccer, you are around it all the time and and then what you've said about, you know, publicly about all the stuff that's been happening with the NWSL lately, uh you've earned that credibility and you know it's it's not like this is something we're enjoying right none of us are talking about but it's important and i i do like the fact that it seems like more people in mainstream sports outlets cover women's soccer on a regular enough basis that i don't i don't notice that
2: the outlets is one thing right cuz like you you think about an outlet like ESPN and and you're like well the only time they they touch on women's soccer on sports center is when Something bad happens, and that you know that may well be true. But you know, they also covered when the team is in the Olympics and, and other stuff like that. Um, but I really think it comes down to like individuals, right? It's like as an individual, as a broadcaster, whether you're on like um, PTI or around the horn or whatever the kind of the mainstream. Those are just the ones that popped you know, popped ahead, like the mainstream talk shows. If at those points the only time you access like women's soccer is to talk, like that's when you need to think to yourself, like, hey, wait a second, like you know, what are we doing here with, as we approach this sport is the only time we care about it when it's like a a bombshell and we have, we have to address it. Like, why don't we ever think about it in in any other times? I'll I'll say this. And it's something that I'm very, you know, proud of and was very intentional with football Americas. When we sat down and we were like, well, what are we going to do with the show? You know, it's been an idea for a long time, but that idea has always kind of been like this until somebody said, got to do it twice a week and then you have to really decide what you're going to do and we had a discussion that was you know like what's what is going to be our connection to the women's game and you know it was a long discussion but it kind of went from like well, how much can we really do can we do it well can we do it honestly to now we got to do it entirely like we got to do it every show every week all the time there has to be a space for it because you either do it or you don't and so Um, we, we created that space and that's why you'll see us like, yeah, we will talk about, um, all the stuff that's happening and, 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 and ownership and, and the problems that the NWSL faces. But the last two weeks we've also done two playoff previews and and we haven't talked about that other stuff. So, you know, we, we're cognizant of that too, even in our divide, like, Hey, when we talk about the NWSL right now, is it 70, 30, if it's, is it 70 bad and 30 good. And then like, okay, next week it needs to be. You know a little bit more the other way because we don't want to get caught either, even though we may have earned the right or we, we do talk about it every week. We don't want to get caught doing the next three shows 100% NWSL scandal while the playoffs are happening. You know, you, you just can't lose sight of that.
0: I want you to be honest about some of your goal calls for the U.S. women's national team. So, my favorite okay. one might have been. Uh, Kristen Press, What Have You Done?, which I think ended up on a t-shirt made by the Breaking Tea Company um, the day might after that. <laughs> and do you practice this, that call? Do you do you have that in your, like, are you the night before, you know, in front of the mirror doing different versions of that call or is that spontaneous?
2: No, so I, I don't there's no kind of like pre so it's, it's interesting you ask me this question right now I'm doing more and more play by play now I mean the, the reality is that play by play was kind of the smallest part of my um you know pie chart if you will right um for a long time I'm doing more and more of it now so I'm thinking about it more now like how do I approach it what do I do how do I prepare um whereas before I kind of prepared as I'd always been told and just did it so the, the truth about that call and every other call is they're, they're spontaneous, they're random. And I I know some people love that and it got put on a shirt. Some people hated it. And maybe that's the other part about being like spontaneous and random is that some people really don't like it. I think, you know, the other thing about my goal calls is they're, they're loud. I mean, you know, they're loud, they're excited, they're excitable. So um, that's not everybody's, you know, preference in a soccer announcer. And I, and I, and I, knew that going in and I know that now for sure from Twitter, but, um, but I think it's, it's like, um, it's one of those where you, you know, a lot of people have like a thing that they go to. Right. And, and I think I have a few things that I go to. I I do the long goal call Al Andres um, Cantor, you know, um, and so many before him, but I I definitely do that a lot in English, which, which is different, but I I think really, you just got to like feel it in the moment. And if you go back and watch that Kristen press goal, it really was a like, it really was a like, oh, like, oh, what, like, what did you do? Like, whoa, like, that's not a thing I see every day. That's, and, and maybe that's also the thing is like, dude, Grant, I have literally watched soccer my entire life. So my entire life has been calling games like, oh, I just missed it. Ah, you know, doing all of that. And so I think you, um, maybe the better goal calls, the ones that the people like the, what have you done? Um, that's something you would say sitting around the couch or some version of that. Like, um and so maybe that's why um, it resonates with people but the things that come out aren't always perfect either so you know um when you don't plan them so maybe in a year you'll ask me and I'll say no nah, like I do have some things because just the other day I was like thinking I was I was going to do a Real Madrid game and I was like oh man should I have something ready for Ben Sema? and then of course he didn't play so it didn't, <laughs> it didn't matter <laughs> but I didn't I didn't I didn't because I was like I don't want you know I don't want it in my head you know I just wanted to <laughs> to feel natural but but I'm on the fence my problem
0: is is that if I called um uh... Did play by play for a game? I would say something like, "That's Benzema with an extortionate attempt on goal," <laughs> and like, and then I would get in trouble, and and you yeah. don't want that. <laughs> um, I do think your 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 like Kristen Press goal call, for example, is of a piece though, with sort of the style that you and Herc have on Football Americas, which is trying to bring a style that is very authentic especially connected to your roots into English language soccer broadcasting in the United States. I mean, that's fair to say, right?
2: Yeah, no, totally. I mean, also um, in the same way that like if you put any marginalized, like person from marginalized minority group in, into any setting, like whatever you are, you're going to bring with you, right? If you put anybody in any setting, um, that that's, what's going to happen. So uh, of course, you know, my goal calls of my youth were long and loud. That's, that's what Herc and I listened to growing up. Maybe the, um, like little caddy back and forth is what we've watched growing up as well. Um, those are things that are representative of the, of the culture, you know? Um, but I also think that, I don't know, I don't know, like, was there a time in the United States where like tacos weren't popular? Cause now it's like, there's tacos everywhere. And like, I think that at some point, like if there's so many of us here and so many of us that identify with that and watch that growing up, but you know, if you look at the census data and this was like a huge part of like why we did the show, um, like, his, like Latinos under the age of 12, I think it's 88% are English dominant. So um, that's a huge and growing number that wants that content, that style in this language. And so I'm, I'm really in some ways I'm, I'm doing what I would do <laughs> if you, if you, if you, if you had a Mexican American kid who grew up watching Univision and you put him in English, what this is what he would do. But I'm also, I think, um, kind of taking some of the stuff from that and introducing it to a market that did, hasn't had it before. Some people will like it, some people won't. Um, and then also including that that new, this whole new, you know, part of America, which is like, hey, you know. Oh yeah, like I'm I'm Mexican American, but maybe I don't speak Spanish or my Spanish isn't that good or what or whatever the case is or 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 I grew up deep in the culture or not deep in the culture. You know, I grew up in Washington D.C. That's super different and and mixed than somebody who grew up in El Paso. You know, so like you can say Mexican American, but um, but it can mean a million different things. So I think you know you you take what you are, you put it out there. And in my case, probably the reason, like, Grant, I have this job, I've had so many of these opportunities, is, yeah, like, you like, you always like to think you have, like, talent or, like, good work. But, you know, demographically, who am I? I'm I'm Mexican, American, I'm bilingual, like, you know, come on, let's be honest. ESPN wanted that for a reason. Why? Because they can read the census, too, you know? And so, like, they're, they're also looking for something when, you know, they give us these opportunities, I think, right? They didn't don't put us out there to to do, to do an english accent like that would be weird on a lot of levels but you know you have that other people do that and they do that amazing but you put me there like you probably want me to do what what reflects my upbringing and the, and my culture whatever that means you know
0: we're winding down here with sebastian salazar really appreciate you taking the time um there's a lot going on right now sort of shaping the future of soccer television in the United States, you know, just we're going to find out here. Maybe by this time this runs, we will have found out who's gotten the English premier league rights for the next six years. Uh, ESPN got La Liga for eight years. Both those deals are worth more than a, well, more than a billion dollars. Like, where are we going with this? Is there like, if, if you and I are talking in five, 10, 15 years, What's soccer like media and and fandom in America going to be like?
2: Well, I think, you know, just like from kind of how I see it from the inside is you see each network kind of positioning itself, or I hope they are, because this would be great from a, a consumer's perspective, but like as the home of international soccer or the home of club soccer or the home of like big event soccer. And I think there's enough, the beautiful thing about soccer is there's enough of it to go around where probably, you know, quite a few subscription over the top services, you know, whatever, ev- the thing that everybody is trying to sell right now can be sold to kind of the basic soccer fan. I think the reality for the basic soccer fan moving forward is it ain't going to be all in one place. We're going we're gonna to have to go buy it in, hopefully I would like, like it in like two or three pieces, but maybe it'll be more depending on just how into like everything you are. As far as, you know, the, the growth of the game, I think the, the huge events will still continue to get, like, really big ratings and big numbers. I think that's always going to push more mainstream coverage. So, you know, as I think about it from, like, an ESPN perspective, I do see soccer making more inroads in, like, the, the PTIs, the Around the Horns. Maybe that'll be because they start including folks that they've seen on, like, Football Américas. Like, I had this kind of, like, long dream of guys who come from Deportes but speak English doing our show, but Hey, they can also talk NFL and that, 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 that. And then their next thing is that they're on around the horn. And now we've kind of um, taken over is the wrong word, but we've, we've kind of shared this talent across the line that I think gives like a whole nother perspective and and another dynamic. And, and so I think you're eventually like in the, in the long term, you're going to see kind of, you know, this, the soccer fan be represented more on air, like, Think about it too. I, uh, I hosted Sports Center once. I'll give you a, a, a quick example. I know we're running out of time. I hosted Sports Center for a week. I'm a soccer guy. Now I was hosting, so I wasn't maybe the most like stand on the desk aggressive, but I was like, hey, can we get soccer in the show? Bop, bop, bop. It was an international weekend. We had some big games on our air. We got a, a play-in on Friday in the bloopers and like the not top 10. That was what we got in. <laughs> but when we didn't have hockey rights, when we didn't have hockey rights, we did have time for a four-minute hit from Vegas with two hockey guys who had been sent out there to cover it about a regular season winning streak in the NHL, which again we didn't have the rights to. And, and that's and think that's because you know the, the groups that produce that, that's their interest. Well, eventually, as more and more people who grew up interested in soccer get ESPN jobs, get industry jobs. Become producers, become associate producers, coordinating producers, hosts, talent, anchors. It's, it's, you're going to see more and more of it in your mainstream. Christian Polisic is going to be a bigger and bigger name. The, those kind of names are going to become like superstars in this country, which I think is, is super exciting, you know, for the game. As to the fandom, I, the fandom is so divided right now. But um, one thing that we do talk a lot about on the show is like what happens to, the next generation of Mexican-American kids. Which way do they go in terms of their fandom? Because for a long time, it's been very easy to pick Mexico, but it's going to get harder and harder.
0: Interesting. Sebi Salazar is the co-host with Hercules Gomez of the excellent show Football Americas, which you can see on ESPN+. He also appears on ESPN FC and does play-by-play with Julie Foudy on ESPN's U.S. Women's National Team Games. Sebi, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. All right, let's start segment three with Chris Whittingham talking domestic soccer headlines. MLS decision day is done, and the nightcap especially provided all sorts of drama as a late Demir Krylak goal for Real Salt Lake at Kansas City gives them the win, puts rsl into the playoffs and kicks out the la galaxy which tied 3-3 with minnesota united that was some good theater on the fs1 television broadcast of the la minnesota game toward the end there and just a wild night uh what do you make of all of this chris
1: so I also happen to be watching on uh, the second screen. I have Apple TV, and with the ESPN app, you can put four games up on the screen. So I, w- so I was doing that. I had four games going on the ESPN feed, and then I had my second TV on the FS1 feed. So I had five Western Conference games going. <laughs> and it's funny because they were all interconnected. At a certain point, you know, Portland beating Austin, that kind of secured them in their, in their spot. But Seattle and Vancouver, you know, Seattle, if they win, are the one seed. Which is the reason, and that game being 1-1 is the reason why Sporting Kansas City still had to go for it against Real Salt Lake, along with Colorado winning, which they beat LAFC 5-2. So all these games are interconnected, and the scenario is Galaxy 3, Minnesota 3. Minnesota have a penalty, which Franco Fragapane misses by hitting the outside of the post. So it stays at 3-3. And then Sporting Kansas City with a goal are the one seed in the West. And if Rail Salt Lake get a goal, they're into the playoffs. If they don't get a goal, they're out. And so you have this incredible drama of both teams. It was the most helter-skelter game over the course of the last 10 minutes because both teams are chasing a winner. And Rail Salt Lake had a couple of chances. Sporting Kansas City, in my view, were denied a clear penalty for a handball by Justin Glad, the Rail Salt Lake defender. But they checked it on VAR. They determined it wasn't a handball. And then on 95 minutes, overhead kick assist (laughs) To Demir Crylock, who scores, and then on the FS1 broadcast, you see the Galaxy bench getting the news, and they're like, oh my God, we got to go get a goal now. And so they have six minutes of stoppage time to go get a goal. Chicharito had a decent chance. It would have been his hat trick if he got the goal. But all of a sudden, it actually turned into a playoff game because if the Galaxy scored, the Minnesota would have been out. And so it was pure, pure, pure chaos. But to me, the ultimate takeaway is the Galaxy out. And they only won two of their last 15 games. This is a season meltdown. And we saw the Galaxy have one of those a couple of years ago, but because the Galaxy had lower expectations coming into the season, maybe they don't get as much criticism for it. But man, they look like they were looking up the table to finish in a home playoff spot. Instead, they're out of the postseason. And Greg Vanny, while I think has generally overperformed in his first season in charge of the Galaxy, has a job on in the offseason to kind of rebuild the psyche of this Galaxy team who now missed the playoffs for a fourth season out of their last five.
0: It's really incredible, actually. And. and I think also it's important to mention here, Colorado wins the West. Yes. Which, finishing first carries a real advantage in the way the playoffs work, as long as you're someone who doesn't think that a bye week after the international week is way too much time off. Because Bruce Arena's talked about this a little bit with what New England's going to be dealing with. But Colorado gets the bye and then, because the two and three seeds are Seattle and Kansas City, those are the teams that are expected, at least, to to face each other in uh, the next round. But we'll see if they can get there. You never know what might happen. But the bracket itself, Colorado's got a nice-looking bracket for them. And all season long, it seemed like Colorado just was sort of lurking, lurking, lurking in third place behind Kansas City and Seattle. And then they steal first place on the final day of the season against, by the way, an LAFC team that is tremendously disappointing. Both LA teams failing to qualify for the playoffs. And maybe the last game for Bob Bradley because his contract's up with LAFC.
1: Yeah, and I'm just kind of looking back at the last time we had this playoff format back in 2019, and NYCFC went out at the first hurdle against Toronto FC, LAFC progressed, but then they lost to Seattle. So yeah, I mean, being the 1C with that much rest might not be a good thing, but Colorado's season has been absolutely incredible, especially when you look at their team there isn't really that talismanic figure that gets you through a season when you're struggling and you got to get a goal. We turn to Raul Rui Diaz if you're Seattle. Or you turn to this year for Kansas City, it's been Johnny Russell and Daniel Shallowy. If you look at their goal scorers, there's not really a player that's like, oh, wow, Michael Barrios has got 20 or Jonathan Lewis has got 20. They just have a bunch of... Really consistent players, and actually a lot of players that they've reclaimed from other MLS teams. And it's been interesting because down the stretch, they've always had a game played more than Seattle and Sporting Kansas City. And even though they played out their games in hand, Seattle, I don't think, won any of their last five. Sporting Kansas City hit a couple of bumps on the on the run-in as well. And so Colorado finds themselves as the one seed home field throughout. And what a remarkable season for Robin Frazier who's completed the turnaround. I mean, there's a lot of storylines in the Western Conference. You mentioned the LAFC thing, both of the both the LA teams out. I think if LAFC had Christian Arango earlier in the season, they'd probably be in. They finally have a clinical goal scorer, but they lost Rossi and they didn't have Vela for most of the way. Brian Rodriguez missed half the season. So uh, I think LAFC was just too disjointed this year to get into the postseason and too leaky defensively. Ever since they sold Walker Zimmerman, they have not been the same team defensively. And they probably need to rectify that heading into next season.
0: A couple things I would say. One, if you're a listener who hasn't heard my interview with Robin Fraser from not too long ago on the podcast, you should check that out because he gets into detail about how this Colorado team was built, how they've found players from using different sources, uh, but also just built a team that's been successful beyond anyone's expectation this season. Uh, Also, if I were running LAFC, I would sign Bob Bradley to an extension. I think he's done enough work there that's been very good. Um, winning the Supporters' Shield in 2019, they set an elite points record that's since been broken by New England, got to the CCL final last season. Uh, ton of injuries this year, and I don't think coaches – same thing with, like, Dean Smith getting fired from Aston Villa after they sell Jack Grealish. I mean, like, Bob Bradley hasn't had his guys this year and i do think that that walker zimmerman trade which zimmerman talked about on the podcast not too long ago uh like that's still the most inexplicable mls trade i can think of in recent years and it's crazy nashville's been better than lafc basically ever since uh which nobody would have expected from a second year expansion team but uh I'm very curious to see if LAFC doesn't keep Rob Bradley, where does he go? Because he would be in demand and there's jobs that are available. Toronto, Chicago, probably, uh, or Houston is another one of where they're like, those are attractive jobs, especially because to like, they're spending teams now. Um, Chicago and Houston more recently because they were bought at current market values by new owners who spent a lot of money and want to see those teams start doing well. So I'm very curious to see what happens with Bob Bradley. Um, Let's talk about the MLS East final day. Maybe not quite as many theatrics as in the West, but um, DC United ends up going out. Red Bulls get in because of a 1-1 tie with Nashville.
1: What stands out to you about the East? Well, the Red Bulls, I think, are certainly one. They qualify for the playoffs for a 12th straight year, despite the fact that they were dire during the summer and actually won seven of their last 12. They drew the other four and lost one in the run, and they just about got over the line. Playing in a very Red Bully way, and you watch them, it's, it's you have no question of who you're watching when you watch the New York Red Bulls. And over the course of the year, they eventually figured it out. They got over the line, and I'd actually really hate to play them in the postseason. They make a lot of games low scoring, ugly. They pump the ball forward, but they're not going to get beat at their own end, and they're going to press you in yours. And so the Red Bulls are getting through. You mentioned Nashville; it's kind of underrated. Being a home seed in the playoffs, Nashville at in their second season, they've made the playoffs last year. They had a couple of nice playoff wins, and I would not be surprised if they did that again this year. They've just been relentlessly solid. Orlando just about getting over the line. But for me, I actually think the talking point is, despite a win, Atlanta United are wheezing into the playoffs. And that's really surprising, because you looked at their run-in. They were home with Toronto. They were away in Cincinnati. And you're like, all right, Atlanta, put them in, no problem. But... They were 1-0 down away at Cincinnati. They failed to beat Toronto FC at home. Those are the two worst teams in the league, along with Austin, in, in, in terms of points this year. Actually, Austin finished second bottom. Houston finished bottom. Yeah, in terms of Toronto and Cincinnati, the two worst teams in the league in terms of points gained. And so Atlanta, not really looking convincing in those games when they have so much attacking talent. They're not scoring a ton of goals, and that situation was not going to be entirely fixed by the change in manager. So uh, it's not surprising. It's it's somewhat surprising to me that they look this bad because during the summer, I thought they were pretty good after they sat Gabriel hindsight, but they still have a lot of work to do. That's not just, Hey, let's change the coach and everything will be fine.
0: I will say this though. And I realized the opponent was Cincinnati, but that Joseph Martinez strike was absolutely fantastic. Picking the ball out of the air, basically back to goal and finding a way to get it across the goal mouth and in uh, Martinez is such an important player for Atlanta. He's got playoff experience and success. Uh, very curious to see how they do in the postseason. Um, I also do want to talk NWSL playoffs here because we've got two playoff games, two quarterfinals, Washington Spirit won over North Carolina Courage, nil Ashley Hatch with the late, late goal in that one off the rebound. And then the other quarterfinal, you've got Chicago Red Stars, one Gotham, nil Mal Pugh, who's had a terrific season, seems to be on her way back to what uh, she sort of established herself as before. And she seems to have a good club situation now. Uh, Also a big week uh her guide dansby swanson from the atlanta braves she was at his uh world series winning accomplishments he was at her game today as she scores the game winner and you know like it's good to kind of just be able to talk nwsl playoffs and not have to get into the washington ownership situation or you know the stuff that we've talked about a lot which is really really important but it's good to remember that like there's big gains going on right now that we can talk about too.
1: And also, they they rectified something, which I think was something hanging over the playoffs when they started, which was they were going to play the NWSL final in Portland at 9 o'clock in the morning. And they actually fixed it because they they moved the final to Louisville so they can still fit in that CBS window. Louisville has been, has responded really well to NWSL in their first season. So they've gotten that sorted. But yeah, I mean, focusing on the soccer is something that's kind of underrated I think right now with NWSL and especially when you look at the playoff match and we go Washington Spirit against North Carolina Courage there's not a whole lot I mean there's a there's a lot going on there off the field but yeah let's focus on the soccer let's focus on these incredible players Washington getting the job done an extra time uh, a, a late late goal uh, to see them through uh, to the next round of the playoffs. And now the top two seeds in the league come in, who are Portland and O.L. Reign. Portland have been the top team for most of the year. Uh, O.L. Rain were able to kind of close that gap in the table. If that's the final, I mean, it would have been great if it were in Portland. Portland, OL rain in the final in Portland, but at 9 a.m. kickoff probably wouldn't have been great. So it's probably a good thing that they're playing it in Louisville. But yeah, there's, there's a lot to look forward to when you look at these playoffs. Let me also
0: congratulate you on pronouncing Louisville the way that people who live in Louisville pronounce it. Yeah,
1: I've actually done a fair fair few Louisville City games, uh, which is how I I made sure that I knew, including their playoff game this weekend, they beat Miami FC in the USL Championship playoffs.
0: I knew you would have done that. Now, here's (laughs) another question, though, and we'll test you here. How do you pronounce the state that Kansas City, bigger Kansas City and St. Louis are located in? Missouri? People in that
1: state say Missouri. Missouri. Oh, Missouri. Missouri. Yeah, you know what? There, I've actually heard some radio commercials where, oddly enough, Missouri has come up. If you're a Missouri, I was like, Missouri. Uh-huh. But I, I didn't realize that was a real thing that natives of of the state did.
0: Now I'm from the Kansas side of Kansas City, which is a, an important distinction to make. Mm. But uh, so I actually probably would say Missouri myself. But mm. just in, in case you're ever dealing with people from that show me state. Something it's good to know. So,
1: so you, so you would think in casual conversation, Missourians would say Missouri, like, like so. Okay, interesting. Because I know, because I know Louisville's is, a, but I've actually, I, I guess, I haven't met enough Missourians in my life because I, I, I don't think I've ever heard that <laughs> except for one radio commercial.
0: Also, good to know now since we're talking NWSL that the Kansas City Current, as they're now yes. named has announced this amazing new stadium just for their women's soccer team that is in downtown Kansas City Missouri um on the river looks pretty amazing um i'm i'm very excited as a as a native Kansas City and about all the soccer things that are happening there it's really become a a, a big soccer city uh in Kansas City and and i am planning on covering the MLS final wherever it ends up being and it could very well be in Kansas City, we'll have to wait and see how that shakes out. But it's it's a great time of the year for postseason in the in MLS starts after the international break. Single elimination, which I love. NWSL, uh, I the timing on that one's not so great for me to get to the final because the final is right after the trip to Jamaica for the U.S. Men's World Cup qualifiers. But um,
1: anything else you want to sign off with? Well, Grant, I mean, I think you have to make your way down to louisville you know if you're if you're properly covering the nwso you go to louisville and you say hey guys i'm here in louisville i
0: just think you're trying to see how many times you can say louisville
1: in this (laughs) broadcast well you caught me
0: chris whittingham thanks as always for joining me thanks grant thanks for listening to football with grant wall i'd like to thank sebastian salazar as well as producer and pundit chris whittingham You can now sign up for a free or paid subscription to my new newsletter at grantwall.com. It has all my writing, including magazine-style features and on-location stories for every U.S. Men's World Cup qualifier. I can't tell you how much I appreciate your support with that. See you next time.